Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Yumiko's Holiday Collection, comprised of festive ready-to-wear options, will be available in stores and online this month. Receive a first chance to shop the new items at their Instagram Live shopping event on December 15th. Plus, for the very first time, the new 2021 colors will be revealed. These events are a lot of fun and discounts are offered, so be sure to tune in at Yumiko on Instagram on December 15th. Yumiko is proud to donate 100% of all sales received on Black Friday to various underfunded dance schools, companies, and COVID-19 dancer relief funds. They are so grateful for their loyal customers who not only join them to raise money, but for also helping them to carry through this exceedingly difficult year. Yumiko wishes all of you a happy and healthy holiday season. As a reminder, the New York City flagship store is standing by and ready to process all of your orders via phone and email to ensure that you can shop safely from home. Check out yumiko.com and Yumiko's Instagram at Yumiko for more virtual training options this winter, new releases, store updates, holiday specials, and much more. I'm Rebecca King Ferraro. And I'm Michael Breeden, and you're listening to Conversations on Dance. Today, we sit down with Ballet Collective's artistic director, Troy Schumacher. Troy first came on the podcast in episode 17 back in 2016, where we chat with him about his career at New York City Ballet, his choreography, and his company, Ballet Collective. Today, Troy returns to the pod to tell us about his current project, The Nutcracker at Weathersfield. In the age of COVID, Troy has taken on the incredible task of creating an immersive live dance experience with a pod of over 20 dancers. Troy tells us all about this enormous undertaking, how people can support this project, and how you will be able to stream it. More information about Ballet Collective can be found at balletcollective.com, and we have linked the streaming information for The Nutcracker in the description of this episode. Thanks so much for joining us today, Troy. I know from, I mean, from firsthand experience, like just how busy you are um, and 
I'm so happy you could squeeze this in so we could talk to you a little bit about a really exciting project that you have going on right now. Well, I'm so happy to share this mm-hmm. with both of you. So, <laughs> so before we get into it, um, let's go back. We're going to do the, the quickest roundup, world's quickest roundup of what your last four years have been, because actually the last time we spoke to you was the very beginning of our podcast. You were one of our first guests ever. So that would have been in fall 2016. Um, tell us everything that's happened <laughs> since then in under 30 seconds. <laughs> Okay. Well, I made a couple ballets for New York City Ballet. I uh, started creating and developing a full-length, evening-length work called The Night Falls. I grew Ballet Collective uh, quite a bit. I made a world premiere for the Martha Graham Dance Company. I had a bunch of other small um, world premieres. I continued dancing. I tore my hamstring. I came back. I had uh, my wife and I gave birth to um, twin girls a year ago, and this summer uh, we created and produced the first full ballet uh, that was performed live since the start of the pandemic. And just this past weekend, we premiered a brand new production of The Nutcracker. So now, uh, you did. <laughs> well, actually, you left out one nice milestone for you. You got promoted in that space because it is tw- that. That's how long ago we last. Had you on wow. the pod. Yeah, yeah. I was the fullest. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so before we get into the Nutcracker at Weathersfield, let, can we go back to, I think, what something that obviously was important in knowing that this Nutcracker was going to be possible, which was your first time creating live art in the pandemic, which was this past September. Um, you had you, uh, a com- totally new work, um, you know, commissioned music and um, dancers working together in a studio. As far as I, we're aware, it's the first premiere of a, a new ballet and and kind of the first ballet where we had saw like ensemble work. I mean, a lot of people were doing little bits and oh, it's like this couple is in their house together. They can do a pot it up. But this was like <laughs> ambitious on a scale that I don't think we saw in the pandemic. So tell us a little bit about the genesis of that project. Okay, so we were planning our season this year, uh, beginning of, I would say, like January, February. We already had some projects in the works, and we, you know, this hit, right? And everybody's world kind of like turned upside down, and immediately I just started um, troubleshooting. I mean, I obviously had little babies, so I was spending a lot of time taking care of them, but also just figuring out like somebody has to come up with solutions to this and how do we create new art safely and following the science. I was just reading coronavirus article after coronavirus article, as I know you were, Michael, as well. (laughs) And just trying to, you know, think about this and then also, you know, have conversations with Valley Collective's board of directors about how, you know, we were potentially in a very unique position to try to do something very ambitious based off of the relationships we've built with the Millbrook, New York area community up here, which at the time and kind of like still has had a very low caseload and is very rural and, you know, for the most part, a pretty safe space. And just having, you know, open conversations about like the importance of art in this time and how it's really been, you know, as we all know, one of the hardest times for performing arts in centuries to Mm -hmm. create new work. So, 
we, you know, spent a lot of time thinking about it and, you know, we're hardened by other smaller scale organizations trying to do something like this. And I think the largest thing to, you know, think about was the, um, or were the, you know, the regulations in New York state in the time, which are in place for a very good reason and trying to do something that was, you know, purely legal, but also explored new pathways forward in our art form. Mm-hmm. Was there ever a time where you just thought, oh, this is too much. I feel like maybe we should just like put a, put this on hold and kind of wait until this all passes because you were up against just so much. Did that ever even occur to you? We talked about it for sure at a board meeting in, in the early spring about like what really kind of made sense. Um, so as we saw just about like every performing arts organization in the country, just kind of you know, going into hibernation, we felt like we were in a unique position to try to do something, you know, very ambitious and very safe. And we just kind of like went for it. We took a leap of faith, hoping that people would support us because we were doing something. And at the same time, you know, we just were so motivated to try to create something new and try to create something special. And you know, the whole project of trying to wade through everything that had happened in our lives in the world, in our own kind of like small way was just uh, a really um, enormous challenge, but also a really inspiring one. Yeah. Did you, did you work with any doctors or anything like that in order to come up with your COVID plan, your initiatives and safety for the dancers? Oh, yes. Uh, we spent <laughs> a lot of time. We had lots of conversations, both with um, uh, a doctor who's on our board, our lawyer, outside doctors, just widely canvassing um, best practices, current science, which was, you know, was and still is just really evolving about how transmission occurs and how, I mean, it's, it's people, it's amazing what we still really do not know. Um, but we have, I think, even now a much better sense than we did even over the summer. So conversations with doctors, looking at other protocols, and just trying to take uh, a really conservative approach to health and safety when trying to form a, you know, what at that time felt like a very large quarantine pod and what we have formed right now, which feels like a very, very large quarantine Mm -hmm. pod. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So how did you manage to comply with the health and safety regulations and state laws um, while also still creating an artistic product that excited you? Did you ever feel stifled by the parameters that were set out? Well, I think really what is you know, what is both sad, but also very practical right now is the amount of people that you can share art with in person. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's, it has to be very low because you need to make sure that people are distanced and that there's basically, you know, very low, low, low risk of any sort of transmission. Uh, You have to plan anything right now as if people are coming into your event positive and Mm -hmm. transmittable, right? Right. So, Mm -hmm. We have to, you know, account for all of that. Even though before anybody comes to all of our events, they have to fill out all sorts of paperwork and affirm to us, you know, all sorts of health assessments and whatnot. But you still have to, you know, cover your bases and be really safe. And especially for, you know, the performers who are coming along with you in this journey, um, that's really important. Um, but it also, you know, feels really special because we're forced to you know, come together in a, in a way that is not necessarily normal or traditional. And so mm-hmm. what we are doing is we're 
know, having this extended quarantine period that's unbelievably strict that we all, you know, sign up for and we all, you know, hold each other accountable and we come together and we form what's essentially a very large household Mm -hmm. together. So when, when we all arrive, we're as clean as, you know, we can possibly be. And if there's any slip ups or any mistakes, we just find a new pathway forward. We hold people back or, you know, we explore different options or whatnot, but it's really about um, taking care of yourself you know, before you enter into, you know, a, a co-working living situation. I'm sure that everybody is so happy to be there right now, right? And be able to be dancing and kind of be in this free area as opposed to what other companies have to do with masks, et cetera. So I'm sure everybody wants to protect that bubble as well, right? With a sense of community in that way. Yeah, everybody has been really wonderful this go around and just really protective of this project because I think everybody realizes how precious this is mm-hmm. and how complicated it was for us at Ballet Collective to put this really together. The hundreds of hours that we put in to, you know, just constructing this and right. taking care of people really as best as we can and trying to give them a home for five weeks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Natural History, the production that you mounted in September, uh, was very successful. I mean, the you had seven dancers. The audience loved it. This, the, um, the outdoor um, stage that you erected, it was so beautifully scenic and everyone was just obsessed with that. <laughs> so everything went great. And then you decided to take on this production, which is a little different from anything Ballet Collective has ever done, firstly. But then kind of all the challenges start to multiply. You know, you can't really do outdoor, outdoor performances anymore because you're talking December in upstate New York. You are going to put on a Nutcracker, which is not going to be feasible with seven people. Um, You know, you have sets and costumes um, that are necessary for you know, the sort of magic that we all associate with Nutcracker, whereas before, you know, it's a natural history was an all new work you could do as you please in terms of that sort of production value. So everything went great, but then you're just like, let's double down on this challenge. So, <laughs> so how did, how did actually, how did they, the idea even start? Since, as I said, it was, it is a little different for Ballet Collective, you know, historically you've always presented works that were um, a total collaboration between three different creators and um, were completely new um, and exists for the company itself. You never presented a work that uh, was pre-existing. So uh, how did this idea even start? Right. I mean, yes. I mean, to your last comment, but it it is what we are, what we have created is entirely new. That's true. Yeah. (laughs) It's reminiscent. Just Tchaikovsky coming back. Yeah. It's Tchaikovsky (laughs) and I did not, the libretto was old. Um, Mm -hmm. So we we had actually were just about to finish the residency this summer, and we had because we were a large pod over the summer. It's like we ate dinner together every night, and we were just joking. And I was just like, "Oh yeah, we're gonna totally do a Nutcracker now." And I, one of our board members, we were at it was the last uh, party, um, the last night that we just had with somebody. One of our board mem- members was potting with us to host some of the dancers and I was at a bonfire we were just talking about it and uh basically the next day some conversations were being had because people were just 
really loving what we produced up here this summer. And I was asked to go on this tour of the gardens at Weathersfield in under the guise of basically producing a socially distanced performance this upcoming summer, because as we all know, you know, this pandemic isn't going away anytime soon. And so I was just walking around the gardens up there and, you know, the gar- they're stunning. They're so well um, preserved and you could obviously do a, a really gorgeous outdoor ballet in a fancy garden there. Like, I mean, it would be fun. It'd be beautiful. We'd have a great time. And then at the end of the tour, we um we went inside the house and just my initial thought was like is this the set of the nutcracker and the wheels just really started spinning and the whole thing just really started organically coming together and i was just like oh my gosh it's less than 12 weeks from when we would need to you know open doors for the first time and i was both immensely thrilled and excited about this idea and solving this crazy problem about trying to save this really important tradition for our art form and for families in this area in perhaps what is the most complicated hard time to try to do something like Mm -hmm. this and i woke up at two o'clock in the morning that night and i just like couldn't stop thinking Mm -hmm. and i wrote a really rough proposal the next day of just trying to think how do we you know reinvent the nutcracker and how people experience it in a safe way and in a way that would probably be quite incredible any year but is really only possible to put together this year mm-hmm. did you ever as a choreographer have any you must have had some thoughts about Nutcracker and steps you would put to that music. To me, I always think like there's, you know, you do Balanchine's Nutcracker. We've done Balanchine's Nutcracker. To me, it's like those steps are so ingrained. Have you always kind of had those thoughts of different steps that you could put to music? Was that part of this proposal or was it really more just like the logistics right away? Well, I think what was really exciting to me was both solving this production to create something incredibly safe and tradition saving. And I think that, I mean, to answer your core question, no, I had never any um, thought of doing anything like this ever uh, from a choreographic standpoint, because Mm -hmm. I think that when you have these classic productions, uh, there's not really, I don't really see always a need to redo them in your own way. You know, I had thought that like, look, if I was ever the director of a ballet company and they needed a new Nutcracker, I would Mm -hmm. 100% choreograph a new Nutcracker for them. Mm -hmm. And I think when you're looking into creating something new, you're either, you know, coming up with a drastically new concept for the ballet and how, you know, the time period, the location, the choreographic style, modifications to the storyline, et cetera, or you're just trying to create a really, you know, beautiful traditional feeling nutcracker experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, and from really the like the meaning behind this and me trying to put this together is to do the latter and to try to save tradition, but realize realizing that it's impossible to um, do that without creating something entirely new. So working in a classical style that you know respects the the libretto respects 
the training that we all have and what these dancers have just been like dying to get back into, but creating something new that fits the parameters and the guidelines and the way that this could be, you know, pulled off in a safe but exciting way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's go through and just sort of tick off how you tackled some of these major challenges. So the first one that you've mentioned a few times is safety, both for the audience and for the dancers. Um, as we mentioned earlier, you were going to have to drastically increase the number of dancers um, involved in the production from the September premiere. Um, so what were some of the ways that you had to rethink things? How were you going to, how were you going to house 20 plus dancers, make sure that they had um, adhered to the quarantine and all that? Were, were there certain thoughts about how casting needed to think of these things as well? Of course. I mean, one of the largest challenges of producing a Nutcracker right now is the sheer number of people mm-hmm. in the cast necessary to tell the story. And when I entered the house, the front door of the house for the first time, I just had this immediate thought of, could you imagine if you parked your car and walked to the front of this house and the doors open and you found yourself a guest at the party scene of the Nutcracker? So cool. And then I started thinking like, if you really think about the first act, it's really just a domestic story of the parents, their children, the uncle, and a couple of dolls. Right when you like, that's the party scene. That's where all the action is told, and everybody else, no offense, is just really there for ambiance and mm-hmm. choreographic impetus and time filling, mm-hmm. right? And scene. to set the scene, yeah. And it's that ambiance is incredibly important because it's not just a nor- normal night at this family's household, it's their right. holiday party. So that's really essential. And so it was just. Um, two-part thing about streamlining the story so that it's told in a a scale that is both doable but also more intimate. And then looking at the large rooms of this house and the guidelines of um, for historical sites in New York, and you know trying to just go underneath all of those thresholds mm-hmm. basically for capacity for distancing, um, for, you know, what the CDC is saying and for exposure, for example, it's uh, 15 minutes of contact for, you know, within six feet of somebody who is exposed and, you know, create crafting a, an experience, an event where people are constantly moving are always in ventilated spaces with additional air cleaning equipment, mm-hmm. um, always wearing new masks. And kind of the thought that I had um, initially about this was like, we're all thinking about transmission, right? Which is like pre- predominantly done through social interactions with mm-hmm. people speaking. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what we're telling everybody is like, you're you're in a ballet so you're there's no speaking there's no mm-hmm. aerosolization happening from anybody who's present at any moment and people go through this entire experience never interacting with anybody else never crossing paths with anybody else and they're frequently moving and always distanced and always masked and always silent and we have these things called air scrubbers in every room and 
that and all of the windows are always open and these rooms have huge windows so it's a it's a, a completely ventilated um experience and mm -hmm. you are you know any semi moment that takes place you're you're in and out very quickly so right. there's you're never even reaching um you know half of that threshold right so let's say that Michael and I are going to the valley to see your nutcracker. Take us through the experience that we would have as we move through the house and tell us what um, audience members can expect. Um, so, you know, right now, because of regulations, um, this is invitation only um, for screened uh, people. And mm -hmm. so what how this occurs is that it's only um, eight families can attend this at a time mm -hmm. so it's incredibly small and then at certain moments it's only three to four families having an experience at once because they're about 10 feet constantly apart from one another mm -hmm. and so you know someone would arrive at the house you meet the parents you meet the children you see the dolls um, and then the party, you know, it's like the classic nutcracker narrative. Mm -hmm. And then after a very short period, um, in indoors with the windows open and the air scrubbers and masks, you are led outside and you are actually led to your own private window as you watch the house go to sleep. And then you see mice scurrying around the house from window to window and you see the Marie run down into the house looking for the nutcracker, curling up with it by the couch. And then the mice find her and start chasing her around the house. And so each window has its own really unique, specific nutcracker experience for this because it's an immersive theater. So you have your own kind of like special <clears throat> vignette mm -hmm. that you see this story take place in. And the nutcracker comes to life and scares all the mice out of the house. And then all of a sudden you turn around behind you and the mouse king is actually out on the terrace where you are. And he's mm -hmm. waving his sword at you, you know, very gently scaring the children <laughs> um, and being, you know, all around menacing. And then the nutcracker actually opens a window of the house, runs out onto the terrace and defeats the mouse king and scares him away. Mm -hmm. um, and so right at this point is the, the largest shift in this production, uh, because you know, normally you're watching this and you're you're seeing this little girl's story, right? What happens to this little girl? Um, but I, I thought with everything that we've really been through this year, it should it should really be our story. Mm -hmm. So it's mm -hmm. like not only does the Nutcracker save this little girl, he actually comes into your world and saves you from mm -hmm. the Mouse King. And so he doesn't lead this little girl on this journey into the pines, into the land of sweets, he actually leads you there. Mm -hmm. So following the battle scene, you're led on this quick journey into the gardens of Weathersfield because, you know, that's really one of the house is incredible and beautiful, but the gardens are also quite spectacular. So I thought, why don't we do the snow ballet entirely al fresco uh, <laughs> in the winter on a hill in the Hudson Valley? And so... Um, so the Nutcracker walks down this long alley of trees and just right before he disappears, five ballerinas enter in um, white snowboarding suits, romantic tutus, fur hats, and <laughs> snow boots. 
Amazing. And and they slowly bore a for, for, um, forward towards you. And you're standing on the opposite side of this reflecting pool. So it's a quite dramatic, beautiful moment. Um, and then the snow ballet happens uh, inside the section of the garden that you watch. And then actually um, the snow ballerinas uh, lead you into the land of sweets afterwards. So, um, and then that takes place in a, an enormous uh, tent that's at about 12% capacity. Um, and it's, you know, tents, there's a, a ton of airflow coming through the tent constantly. And we have um, close to a million BTUs of uh, fresh or filtered air being blown through mm -hmm. um, the entire time. You're like almost an epidemiologist at this point, I feel. You must have learned so much from this. <laughs> well, it's it's really important because I feel like what we're doing in the scale of how we're doing it is, um, you know, I think it's important for the art form and it's important to give people hope that if you can um, look inside what is safe mm -hmm. and try to recreate that, um, as best as possible. And so it's not just conversations with um, doctors and lawyers and board members, but it's also conversations with dancers and common sense and mm -hmm. canvassing everybody to just make sure that, you know, you're not forgetting anything mm -hmm. that you can be doing to be taking care of people. Uh, mm -hmm. And so if that takes a little bit more work on my end, like, I'm going to do it because mm -hmm. it needs to be done. Right. We will return to Conversations on Dance in a moment. But first, clearly, as a Conversations on Dance listener, you're a dance person. But even for the most devoted obsessive, it can be hard to stay on top of all the dance world's news. Enter the Dance Edit podcast, hosted by a group of editors from Dance Media, aka people who nerd out about dance for a living. Every Thursday morning, they lead a roundtable discussion on the week's top dance stories, followed by an interview with one of the dance artists shaping the news. Whether you're a dancer, a dance teacher, or some other variant of dance enthusiast, you'll find something that moves you on the Dance Edit podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or at thedanceedit.com slash podcast. So there's just so many, obviously, just like the way you took us through that, it was, you're telling us like the artistic experience, but involves so many um, external things that would just not normally be a part of your artistic creation. But let me, let's focus on that part for a second, because obviously you're, you're, you're having to think about all these health precautions, but at the same time, you are still having to create an artistic product. So when did that start to become more of the focus? When did you have to say, okay, now I have to make this ballet. And then what was your approach to that? Like, how, how does that differ from just like, okay, I'm making a ballet from scratch and I'm working with the composer. Like, what, what was your process for this? Because it's quite different from something you would normally do. Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess because I've had close to 10 years of experience producing these dance events for Ballet Collective, uh, mostly in New York City and the Millbrook area, you know, I have a, a bit of producing under my belt. But the scale of this and what we are putting together, a, a lot had to be in place before I could really allow myself to begin the artistic journey of this. 
so when this idea first came to me in mid-September, I spent two weeks exploring really three things, which was the artistic challenges uh, in achieving this and making it something very special and good, the financial challenges because the... Um, you know, what is essentially making this project doable is that it's a, a private event that's occurring at a historical site that's invitation only, which means that there's there's no tickets available to this. It's a completely revenue, um, you know, there's zero revenue coming mm -hmm. in for this. And so what is happening is that um, underwriters from the dance community and the local community here are basically contributing to support all of these dancers, musicians, sorry, not musicians, dancers, designers, stagehands, costume people, arts workers, you know, close to 50 of them coming back to work, or maybe more than 50 actually, coming back to work for the holiday season and doing it in a really safe way. So that's really what the all of the financial um, compensation is going towards. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I had to put together a budget of how do we do this and how do we do this in a sustainable way that is going to be, um, you know, that we're going to come out of this. Okay. And we're going to actually be able to, you know, provide all of these out of work people compensation for work, right. uh, right now, which I think is incredibly important. We can talk more about that later, but I think mm -hmm. that, um, I just needed to get a lot of ducks in a row. Right. It's a ton of money to raise in two months. It was a, you know, if I had to do just one of these jobs, like just the producing side, just the fundraising side, or just mm -hmm. the creative side, it's a 12 month project. And I was doing all of that in 12 weeks. So um, I had to work really hard and I knew it was, I was going to have to work really hard. And so I just had to see like where the interest was. And so all of that took about, um, you know, it's still going on, but I, you know, what got us to the stage of like really pressing go on this took about four weeks. Um, and through all of that, I was doing a lot of artistic problem solving um, mm -hmm. because this is half direction and half choreography. So I was able to spend a lot of time working on the direction of this and how um, the event would be structured uh, from place to place, what things might look like, what the gist was going to be. And then came the, you know, enormous overwhelming challenge of choreographing a nutcracker mm -hmm. um, when you've been you know performing the same production of it for 15 years and while trying to not reinvent um it in a in a radical avant-garde way mm -hmm. um trying to create something that was working completely in the classical vernacular but also doing it in the round mm -hmm. uh, which is uh, both a wonderful but fascinating challenge because classical ballet is so presentational and trying to give a very, um, pardon the pun, well-rounded experience for everybody mm -hmm. uh -huh. uh, who's present. Um, because to keep everybody, you know, 10 feet apart and 15 feet from the dance floor you know, we had, that's the only way to really do this safely. Um, but at the same time that that element really allowed me to break free. Uh, but there were certain, uh, elements of this that flowed and I had a really great time, uh, from the get go. And then there were different, different elements that just took a second to, um, to break free from certain, um, phrasing or musicality or choreographic structure elements. Mm -hmm. I love that you said that about um, having to create in the round, that it actually 
because that's a it's might seem like an obstacle, but but that takes you immediately outside of any nutcracker you've ever seen. You've never seen a nutcracker in the round, so that that allows you to be free a little bit from um, twenty plus years of seeing. I mean, not just balance sheets, like Nutcracker is everywhere. And I'm sure you grew up with a production that you loved as a kid and like that sort of thing, you know? So I, I like that, that that seeming obstacle ended up being a freeing thing for you. Yeah, absolutely. I find obstacles oftentimes are freeing because mm-hmm. you have to find your way around them and mm-hmm. you can't do that by just walking straight forward. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about what the uh, rehearsal process was like. Um, it seems like there's a lot of elements that are particular to the space and you weren't rehearsing in this space, right? You were rehearsing elsewhere. So we had um, several different uh, things that how our, we had separate, sorry, we had several different methods, um, how we rehearsed. Uh, the first was during the second week of all of the dancers quarantine, we rehearsed via Zoom and which I tried to, um, you know, stage the elements of this production that I was able to pre-choreograph, which mm-hmm. I think, as Michael knows, is not something that I ever really like or choose to do. Mm-hmm. But for this, it was really essential because we were staging 60 minutes of material and we had basically two less than two weeks to do it once we formed the pod. <laughs> so, you know, I was just trying to get everything in the row and um, there was a certain point where I just, you know, I told everybody like I, I'm cutting off half or two thirds of my admin hours because I need to be doing this and I need to be mm-hmm. prepared when people get here because it's not just um, dancing something for the first time, but it's a ton of material. And mm-hmm. as you all know, these div- these sections of the Nutcracker, you like to re- you need to rehearse them. It's not mm-hmm. like you just learn it and do them, especially when you haven't performed classical ballet in 10 months right yeah (laughs) absolutely that's insane yeah Um, so you know we got to work and you know i'm just choreographing six hours straight each day um staging this you know the the first act is really it's much more direction than choreography uh Mm -hmm. because of the immersive nature of the event and we so I was working partially because, uh, you know, the craziest thing is that uh, about 17 of the pod is is staying upstairs in the mansion in the Hudson Valley, which is kind of crazy and amazing and generous of Weathersfield to be doing that. So that's yeah. really, it's their home mm-hmm. where the event is taking place. Um, and then everybody else is basically staying on satellite um, housing on the, on the property. So wow. um so they're there. And so mm-hmm. we, you know, the the first act is staged almost entirely, you know, it's a site-specific work, so it has mm-hmm. to be there. And right, then right. you had, you know, an amazing, um, you know, 6,000 square foot gymnasium that was donated to us for our first week of rehearsals. And then at Duchess Day School and then the Millbrook School, which is another local school that Ballet Collective has a relationship with, has been, you know, providing a, a studio space for our morning class and whatnot. And then once the um, large tent went up and we got the heaters installed and the propane tanks and everything, um, you know, we also were using that as a space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know that all of these dancers, we know a lot of them too, are dreams to work with. But have you noticed that during this time, there's like a different eagerness in them because they've been away from dancing so long? Is there a different enthusiasm in the room? 
Um, I, I think so. I mean, it was really like when you're running a company, you're oftentimes really used to working morning to night, doing all sorts of things that people just really take for granted, mm-hmm. right? As a dancer, you're so easy. It's easy to just like show up and like be like, I have a ballet to dance. I have a studio. I have a space. And mm-hmm. you you don't always receive necessarily um, any sort of gratitude. So you really learn not to ex- really expect it. And you're not doing this for gratitude, right? Mm-hmm. We're doing this because we love this art form and we love creating new art. Mm-hmm. Um, but for this, it's like, I'm a really hard worker and I wear a lot of hats all the time, but nothing close to compares to what it took to put this together. Mm-hmm. I, I really like can't overstate how, how much it took. And so that moment when on the 17th of November, when the dancers finally arrived, it was incredibly emotional for me to just like see the smiles on their faces when they showed up at Weathersfield for the first time. Mm-hmm. It was like, you know, I was, I didn't go into this because I about like this project was not really about me Mm -hmm. at all. You know, as I said, like this wasn't something that I like pursued for myself. It was, I pursued this to try to keep the nutcracker going and to get all of these brilliant dancers and arts workers back for the holidays and give it, give them artistic purpose. And so you know, to see the appreciation in their faces um, was, you know, incredibly validating for me uh, because I it just, it, it was all for them and this is all for them. So, you know, you, it really feels worth it. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. Uh, one question I have, because I know this is such a, an important thing to you is making art accessible. Um, it's always been a big priority for ballet collectives to ensure that it's not just, you know, the 1% of, of wealthy donors that make it happen, that, that people who um, want and need the exposure to the art get it as well. Um, but the limitation here is that you can only get so many people in the door. Is there a way that you found to um, still make sure that um, people who might not otherwise have the chance to see something like this are, are getting it? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as I mentioned, it's this project is has been funded completely on the front end by a group of incredibly, incredibly generous people that I am so grateful for. And at the same time, it's like, this can't just be purely uh, an uber fancy nutcracker experience for the 1%. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, right now it's, it's not, we can't sell tickets to an event like this. We can create it and invite and and invite people. Um, So what we all did as we, we formed a committee of local residents up here, myself and, um, we decided to, in the funding structure, uh, to for um, three out of the four underwriting levels for this, we are doing we are doing a one for one um, invitation donation to a series of local nonprofits that mm. serve children and families really hard hit by the pandemic, and um, also some first responders. Underwriters have you know, some leeway of where they want the, which organizations they want those um, invitations to go to. So about 40% 
of the guests at this event will be um, people served by these local nonprofits. So it's, awesome. you know, it's serving two really uh, important groups mm -hmm. uh, if, in the community up here. It's the people that we need as artists to actually be able to make art in this time. And then it's the people who maybe need this the most, who have had mm -hmm. really like, we've all had really hard, hard year, right? It's been a hard year for everybody, but you know, for some people it's been really hard. Right. And to try to give people mm -hmm. um, this joy. And I got an email from a um, one of the local reverends of one of the nonprofits that were donating this to. And he, um, he wrote the story of a, of a woman coming to his food pantry for the first time, just completely embarrassed. Um, and then he told her about this and that he was gonna give her and her family an invitation to this Nutcracker and she com just completely broke down in tears. Mm. And like you hear stories like that and that's like really what, what we're doing this for, mm -hmm. right? Like we all wanna get back to work and we all wanna be dancing, but we like wanna be giving the joy of this experience to to people mm -hmm. that um, need it and we need the arts and you don't think you do until you experience them again after so long. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, that's so such nice. a beautiful story. <laughs> I, I also wanted to, to bring something up that you, we talked about just before we got on, which is, I mean, like as wonderful, like something like that is the reason why you're doing what you're doing and that that's so um, meaningful and, and beautiful but then like on the individual side of things you're still trying to make the dancers happy by themselves like even though you, this is such a, a, a busy project and you could just as easily have said that's it we got one cast we're gonna plow through and just ride this out you just told us that today which is the first day after the weekend of all your first previews you're actually just working on getting more casts on to ensure that the dancers individually as well are having their best experience. Yeah, I, it's, it's really important for me and everything I'm doing to try and try to benefit as many people mm -hmm. as I can right now. And because of the intimacy of this event, you know, we're doing a, a fair number of them and we, I, in developing the casting plan for this, I mean, we already got two casts on this first weekend mm -hmm. of events. And today we're, you know, we're changing stuff around for people, people writing new roles so that they can get on stage and, you know, dance them or, mm -hmm. or even just rehearse them. Right. I mean, how many, like we, uh, the three of us can all, oh um, gosh back that up like I can think of specific times I rehearsed a ballet that I didn't get to dance and how special that was like that can feel just as meaningful in its way yeah yeah I mean absolutely and look we're we're here I mean we're all great dancers like everybody who's in this is, is a wonderful special individual and you know one thing you learn as a dancer is that like there's you can think about a part or you can work on it in the studio but there's no substitute for being you know with dancing and being the only person there right mm -hmm. that's yeah. that's invaluable experience and those, mm -hmm. those are growing experiences and you know it's it's fun it's like to do different parts and to be playing around and this this is you know this is a very different environment than mm -hmm. 
going into work every day and then showing up to a theater. It's like, we're, we're all here. We're, we're, we've had to form a large family and everybody's chipping in. Um, and like, we're just trying to do everything we can right mm -hmm. now and keep it fresh and keep people, you know, inspired and motivated. And not like we have an, an issue with that because we've all been forced to not do what we love for mm -hmm. you know, 10 months. And as you said earlier, it's like, there's been a ton of modern and contemporary projects, mostly solos or duos or, you know, what we were very privileged to present this summer, but like, how many opportunities have there really been to do classical ballet as mm -hmm. an ensemble um, right. in the country, mm -hmm. especially this region of the country? It's 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 so yeah. rare. And I can just tell you, like, after the premiere of this or the first event that we did, it was just sitting um, in the tent and seeing the dancers just fully in their element for the first time as a group. It was unbelievably emotional uh mm -hmm. to see that occur and if, if i hadn't been working you know 12 to 14 hours a day for 11 weeks hmm. straight uh i probably would have had the same you know reaction as well because it was yeah. just it's so important and so meaningful to witness mm -hmm. So I know it's only been just the first weekend, so it's still very in its infancy, but do you see any way that this production could live on in a vaccine world where we don't have to worry about all of these hoops so much anymore? I mean, I think it's incredibly scalable, this idea, and it's, you know, it's like, as I said, it was like, one of the reasons why this was so exciting for me to try to produce was like, not only if this isn't like some weird settling version mm -hmm. of the Nutcracker, it's something that I feel like is an amazing experience for mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. to see. And like when you, I think one of the largest challenges sometimes of proscenium style, you know, theater or dance is that like you are removed from it. You're right. just watching something occur. and for me, the, the the idea was like not only does like the Nutcracker save you and take you on this journey, you also enter this the land of sweets, and you are the person sitting at this throne covered with yeah. fake goods. Like you, <laughs> this is all for you, right. right? And so, you know, it's it's a work around the like awkwardness of presentational style dance mm -hmm. um, because it's like really like these people are actually here for you mm -hmm. right even though that's implicit in any proscenium style performance but it's, right. this is like no like you enter the tent and they're there for you so it's a um you know we've we've been talking with various people also about ways to you know scale this up either mm -hmm. you know at weathersfield or at other uh locations and mm -hmm. venues around the country because like right now we're, we're doing it this way because it's the only safe way right. to do it. Right. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's immensely scalable and, you know, I, I hope that we can get more people in at some point mm -hmm. to, to have this experience. Right. So cool. So before we let you go, uh, is there anything else that we need to know about the production? I'm sure a lot of people um, listening to this will want to be involved or uh, certainly they'll want to see it. And there is one way that they will be able to, right? There's a stream that's happening starting December 23rd. 
Yes, we're, right now there's going to be a stream that's available for a few days beginning mm -hmm. on December 23rd. And um, we're also in discussions uh, with some uh, distributors about doing something live as well. As mm -hmm. you can imagine, it's an incredibly complex event to yeah. capture. But right. we know we need to share this mm -hmm. really at large. So if you go to bellycollective.com slash stream, mm -hmm. uh, that site will be updated as more details come in. And that will also be everybody's portal to access um, the eventual, you know, uh, embedded, you know, file right. um, that we are sending out. Uh, and then if you go to also just nutcracker.weathersfield.com, you can learn a lot more about the production. Uh, and I also just want to um, thank you know, some of the uh, companies that have made really generous donations to mm -hmm. this, uh, including um, Oscar De La Renta, who has costumed the uh, women of the party scene, mm -hmm. uh, Todd Snyder, who has costumed the men, um, Balsam Hill, who has made a very large uh, contribution of, you know, artificial trees and wreaths mm -hmm. and so cool. garlands. Um, as well as No Relation, Schumacher Fabrics, which is just <laughs> an incredible uh, wallpaper and fabric company um, that all the presents are wrapped in and um, tables are covered and, and curtains and whatnot. So, I mean, this is a, an enormous undertaking. Um, and so I'm just incredibly grateful for everybody, especially our creative director, Elizabeth Mayhew, who... Um, Direct, who directed the, you know, the decoration of the house and the tent and the exteriors and John Cuff, our lighting designer. It's just been a huge, um, wow. it's a huge project, mm -hmm. but everybody knew that this was, you know, this was the way for right. us to all come together again. And it's, it's not like anything we've ever experienced, but neither is 2020. Right. Absolutely. Oh, it sounds so great. We're really looking forward to watching it. We'll be sure to share that um, as information my, comes my available. Christmas Eve moment. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> I know. That sounds so great. We have to let you go, but thanks for telling us all about your experience and um, and we can't wait to see it. Yeah. Well, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Thanks, Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week. If you would like to support the Conversations on Dance podcast, there are a few ways that you can help. Click over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Download episodes when you listen to allow our analytics to better understand our listenership. Join our Facebook group, Conversations on Dance, Friends of the Pod, or you can offer a donation. Conversations on Dance has always been and will always be free to our listeners. You can help us continue to create and produce this unique behind-the-curtain look at the dance world by visiting conversationsondancepod.com slash support. Thank you for tuning in. See you next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.